0: This evening I'll invite you to turn your Bibles once again to Colossians chapter 1. Returning to Colossians chapter 1. And this evening we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. Under the heading of prayer deals with complacency in Christians. Prayer deals with complacency from verses 9 through 11. Beginning in verse 9. And so... patience, with joy. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Well, my most dear friends, complacency is one of the great fights of the Christian faith. We will all likely need to do battle with complacency at some point in our lives, do battle with self satisfaction you see to be complacent in our faith is to give ourself is to give our flesh a sense of security that it craves but the security when we are complacent is not in God it's not a security in his promises but it's a security in ourselves as we read this morning from Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has much to give thanks for in the, Colossians church, in the Colossian church. He is thankful that they are faithful. He is thankful that they are saints. That they are growing in their faith, their hope, and their love. We see really in those first eight verses that the Apostle Paul is warm and he is pastoral towards the Colossian church. But the Apostle Paul is not unaware that we as Christian people can tend towards complacency in our faith. And he's right. Sometimes when we are commended for something in our faith, we tend to think that which we were commended for, that we've got that down packed. Don't wait. Somebody might say to you, for instance, I'm so impressed with your prayer life. You might think, well, I guess I got that pretty well down now. I don't need to continue to work at prayer and to continue to press in my prayer life. Or your Bible reading. Or your tithing. But before you know it, you become, the, you become stagnant in these things. And begin to rest on your laurels. And we can come to a place of complacency. Which leads to a half-hearted faith. A lukewarm love for Christ. Rather than an attentiveness to the Word. An attentiveness to the means of grace. The Word and prayer. Attentiveness to God's Word in the public assembly. To put it in a colloquial way, Complacency leads to sleepy Christians. Think of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about it a touch this morning. But Satan is very tricky. He's very smart when it comes to bringing errors into the church. But another means by which Satan effectively brings error into the church is is when Christians can become complacent. We become apathetic to God and His Word, which is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? To become complacent is to not even know what God's Word says any longer. And so, one of the effective means by which Satan can bring error into the church is to lull us to sleep and to send heresies our way, to send challenges our way that we're not ready for. And so, we'll all deal with complacency in this life. But how are we to combat complacency? How are we to combat a lack of attentiveness, a sleepiness when it comes to our faith, or a resting on our laurels? Look what the Apostle Paul says in verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you. Paul attacks complacency in the Christian church by being on his knees in prayer. Prayer can be such a challenge for the Christian today, can't it? I hear it all the time. Jacob, this is an area of my walk with the Lord which I really struggle with. To pray. I can read a devotional, I can read a chapter of the Bible every day, but you ask me to pray, ask me to pray, excuse me, and I am totally lost. Maybe you feel like that? This evening. How can we pray prayers that deal with complacency when we feel stagnant in our love for God, complacent in our desire for the Word? The Apostle Paul shows us in verses 9 through 11 we, can, we need to be people who pray for perfect knowledge, people who pray for godliness and purity, and people who pray. For, to endure trials with patience. That is, we are to pray for perfect knowledge, pray for godliness in, in purity, and to pray to endure trials with patience, this is the kind of prayer that can deal with complacency in our lives. So we see in verse 9 the apostle Paul says these words, from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul moves in verses 3 through 8 from thanksgiving to intercession in verses 9 through 11, and he tells you how uh, in how intimately he tells you precisely how he prays them. But notice how this evening, how counter-cultural it is to pray. We talked about it a touch this morning, the issues that the Colossian church was, was facing. The Colossian church was facing heresies that threatened the eternal soul of the members. Remember the Judaizing, the Christ and the Mosaic laws, the vain philosophy, Christ and the worship of angels, Christ and asceticism. There is also, at the time of the Apostle Paul writing this letter, the impending threat of Rome to crush this little congregation. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison, but notice he starts with prayer. Prayer. I want to ask the question, why? If we were confronted with such drastic problems, would our first response be prayer? But it's imperative that the first thing we do is pray, because when we do pray, we are confessing that yes, there is problems in our lives, but it is God alone who is able to resolve them. Our churches, Trinity United Reformed Church, desperately needs prayer. It is prayer, says the Bible, that keeps us from the temptations of Satan. It is prayer, says the Bible, that pleases God. The prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Paul starts the letter of Colossians with prayer because it's prayer alone that can lift us out of complacency. Prayer is the antidote. It is the cure for a lukewarm faith. For a complacent church. For stagnant congregants. And right off the bat, he says, from the day we heard. Connecting it to verses 3-8. through eight. He's saying, from the day we heard of your faith, your love, and your hope, We have not ceased to pray. Paul prays for them because he has heard that there are Christians in Colossae. He prays because they are Christians. And he doesn't say that he alone is praying, but he says that we are praying. If you look back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 1, something we looked at this morning, we see that he is accompanied by Timothy, our brother, likely serving as the scribe for this book. If you look at chapter one, 1, excuse me, verse 7, he's also joined in prison by Epaphras, the founding pastor of Colossae. If you chap, flip to chapter 4, verses 10-14, through 14, he will name a few different other men who are with him in, in prison who are also joining him in praying for the church in Colossae. These people are all in constant prayer for the church. He's a firm believer in the fellowship of prayer. As an apostle, he prayed for the church, but in turn, chapter 4, verse 3, he expected them to pray for him. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. As Christian people, he's giving us an example in himself. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. He is giving us an example of how we are to be towards one another. We are to be a praying people. A people on our knees. Not because we are more spiritual than the other church down the road. Not because we desire more Zen or spiritual enlightenment. We are to pray simply because we are Christian people. We pray because we belong to the same spiritual family. Notice that Paul doesn't say you should pray for the people because you like certain people. Or for some other reason, or to gain something from them. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ simply because they are brothers and sisters in Christ the motive of prayer is that we should love the brothers and sisters in Christ enough to be on our knees and praying for them. An illustration comes to my mind. When I was doing my undergraduate in theology, I did an internship at a local Pentecostal church. It was quite the experience. And there was a man there who attended the church I would call uh, a very affectionate man who would like to give me hugs and he would say to me on various occasions Jacob I really love you man and you know I'm a Canadian so I just responded yeah I love you too and his response of which I will never forget is he said oh you love me do you pray for me to which I said I didn't want to lie to him. Uh, well, uh, no, I haven't. And his response was, then you don't really love me. Sort of a stinging rebuke. But he is right, in a sense. The best way that we declare our love and affection for someone consists that in the secret place with God we would pray for those whom we love. To love someone literally means to wish good upon them. So to truly love someone is to wish spiritual good upon them. Thus, when the Apostle Paul says, I pray for you, he shows us that he truly loves the church in Colossae. When Jesus Christ says, he prays for us in heaven. He shows us that He truly loves us. We are called, likewise, to truly love, to spiritually love one another in the church. And we evidence this, not by gifts, not by even saying it, but by wishing spiritual good upon one another in prayer. That's the motive. The motivation of our prayers should be our love for one another. Paul makes that curious statement where he says, I haven't ceased to pray for you. He is persistent in his prayers. Jesus likewise taught us in Luke chapter 18 that He gave a parable to His disciples, remember, about that persistent widow who comes to an unjust judge. And she says, Hear my cause. Give me justice. Vindicate me. He taught them that parable that they might always pray, Christ says, and not lose heart. A verse maybe some of you know off by heart, it's not too hard to memorize, is 1 Thessalonians 5.17. That we are to be a people who pray without ceasing. We are all familiar with that. But what do these phrases mean? Are we to be a people who are in prayer 24-7? Is the Apostle Paul and Jesus telling us that we are to throw off our jobs and our families and to become monks and nuns and pray all day? Or should we rent a cabin in the woods and commit our lives wholly to prayer? And I don't want to suggest that maybe there aren't times in your life where you should spend great amounts of time and prayer. But I want to suggest this evening... That instead, the principle here is that we are to live our everyday lives, but to soak every action and every decision in prayer. Prayer that is unceasing, I'm going to suggest to you is threefold. as one pastor suggested to me. Prayer that unceasing is a prayer that is dependent upon God. That is, that we are to recognize that everything that comes to us in this life is from His hand. That we are to praise Him for every blessing. We bring to Him every need. We are utterly dependent upon Him. Secondly, prayer that is unceasing is also persistent with God. We are to be like that widow in the parable that I just mentioned from Luke 18 that is persistent with her plea. The point of Luke 18 that parable there is not that Christ is unjust or that God the Father is unjust, but that the widow who comes to the judge hundreds of times, hear my prayer, excuse me, hear my plea, vindicate my cause, give me justice. Is that we are to be persistently depending wholly on God for the future. We are to be dependent, we are to be persistent, but then we are to be steadfast. And you might say, well, what's the difference between persistence and being steadfast? What I mean by steadfast is that our prayers are not to be hindered by the circumstances of this world that's meant to be a bit of a stinging comment for us. Because we often justify our lack of prayer, our not praying because we are too busy. Because life has caught us up. But God, in the Scriptures, wants us to pray prayers that are not hindered by our circumstances and hindered by the lives that we live so allow me to be clear i don't think you need to be in a certain posture or a certain form in order to pray you don't need to be in the church in order to pray you can be you can be praying while you're working you can be praying in a hospital bed No matter what is going on in our lives, we always have the privilege and the opportunity of communing with God in prayer. And a great example of this is the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel, who, despite the circumstances of this world and the decree of the Babylonian government, who said, You will go into the lion's den if you pray. He stood in the window facing Jerusalem and three times prayed to his God. So, prayer that is unceasing is not to become a monk or a nun to join the monastery. Prayer that is unceasing is prayer that is wholly dependent upon God, persistent in bringing your pleas before God, and steadfast in not being hindered by the circumstances of this life. And allow me to take a moment to encourage you, dear Christian, this evening. Maybe you have been praying that one prayer over and over and over again in your life. Maybe for a family member who doesn't know the Lord and isn't saved. Maybe you continue to pray for a church that is not yet mature, a sin that so easily entangles you, yet you have yet to have freedom from. And every day you come into the presence of God and you say, Hear my prayer. Save my son. Save my daughter. Build your church. Free me from this sin. I am your child. Here is the teaching from Colossians and from God's Word, is do not cease praying. God has heard your prayer. Continue to be persistent and continue to be steadfast in offering your prayer. If not after the first thousand, pray another thousand. If not after that thousand, pray thousand pray another thousand, but know that God has not ignored your cry. But it is the desire of God Almighty that you would continue to depend, continue to bring your needs before Him each and every day of your life. So the Apostle Paul says, I have not ceased to pray for you, but what is he asking? He's asking that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The whole point of his unceasing prayer is that they may be filled. That's the burden of his heart. He has shown in verses 3-7 through 7 of chapter 1 that they have faith, they have love, they have hope, they have other spiritual gifts. But now he asks for a greater gift from God, that they would have wisdom and spiritual understanding. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is a knowledge of faith coupled with a godly or a desire to live according to God's standards. The fact that it's spiritual tells us it's not produced by man, but it is a gift from Almighty God. What is he praying for here? He's praying that the God of the Bible would reveal to the Colossian church the truth of the Bible. He prays that they might know the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is true spiritual wisdom. Your congregation, this is the only way we combat false teaching and the philosophies of this world is to be filled with the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. We cannot serve God without knowing His will. So He prays. And He doesn't pray for an abstract, theoretical knowledge But he prays that the church would have a penetrating insight into the wonderful, redemptive plans of God in Jesus Christ. That's his desire for the church. That they would not be satisfied in and of themselves, but that they would find satisfaction in God Almighty. That's the first way Paul deals with the complacency in the church that they would pray for a perfect knowledge. They would pray for an understanding and insight into the Word of Jesus Christ for them. So when we find ourselves struggling with complacency, whether that's apathy to God's Word, struggling to stay attentive in, in church, struggling to be obedient to what God has called us to, Paul teaches us to pray, at all times to pray, and to bring burdens to the Lord. What a marvelous idea. So simple, but yet so true. That every affliction we have, we bring it to the Lord in prayer. But Paul prays also in verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here we see that movement from understanding now to applying that understanding. He prays for godliness and purity. To live a life worthy of the Lord. This is picking up on an old Hebrew phrase, right? To walk. Leviticus 26 says, walk in my statutes. Galatians 5, the apostle will say outwards, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. These passages remind us that Christianity is not a one-and-done experience. It is a journey. And on that journey, we will all be assailed by various trials and afflictions, but we are called to keep walking forward. So we are to walk, notice what Paul says, fully pleasing to Him. This is to be our goal in the Christian faith. Why does Paul think it's so important to please God anyways? I'm going to give you a technical answer, but then I'm going to give you an illustration to help us understand it. The reason Paul wants us to please God in every way is because the end determines the heart of the moral thing done. The end determines the heart of the moral thing done. What does that mean? Say you have a child, which some of you do, and your children only ever obey you out of duty. The only reason they clean their room is because they're afraid of you. Are you happy with that? Instead of your child doing what they ask, of what's asked of them out of love and respect. The answer is no. We want our children, we want our spouses, we want our employees, anyone who we may have authority under, to serve us out of love. Not fear or duty. When children or our spouses only serve one another out of fear and duty, it only frustrates us more. So it is the same with God Almighty. The scope of of the whole of our lives ought to be this that we would please Him and glorify Him and serve Him out of love for Him we serve Him not only out of mere duty and obligation but we serve Him because we want to please Him and because He is worthy of our love But before we move on, I want to put a question before you. And I believe it to be the most important question you will ever be asked. And I do not mean that facetiously. The most important question you will ever be asked is, how is a sinner such as I, how can we be fully pleasing To Almighty God. I don't know about you. But I have many failures. And many weaknesses. Every day. How can I be fully pleasing to God? How can the average Christian. Be fully pleasing. To God Almighty. Take heart. If you are a Christian this evening, you by faith are always pleasing and acceptable to God, not because of your goodness, not because of your holiness that you produce today, but you are pleasing before God as a member in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are pleasing to God in Christ. But the good works that we do, as imperfect and as minuscule as they are, are nevertheless pleasing to our Heavenly Father as they are covered and adorned with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our obedience is feeble. I'm not trying to say it's glorious. It's not that our good works are satisfactory. We know they're unsatisfactory. But we need to beware of the temptation to think, well, I might as well not offer to God anything at all. Because it's so feeble. We're like children who make a macaroni piece of artwork for Mother's Day or Father's Day and we look at it and we say, this isn't a Picasso. This is no Rembrandt. I might as well throw it away. And you get rid of that. But this is not what the Apostle Paul is praying for. He is not praying that we would be the greatest Christians. He is not praying that we would have the best of works that we would be the mightiest of Christians. He is praying that we would be faithful to God. To pick up on that illustration again, God the Father accepts your macaroni artwork. He accepts your obedience, not because of how beautiful our obedience is, not because of how excellent our good works are, but because we come to God through the Son seeking to please Him. So, he call, so the God our Father sees when you call the widow seeking to comfort her. He sees our feeble attempts to share the Gospel. He knows When you are shamed in the university classroom for your faith in Jesus Christ, He sees when you seek to raise your children and they only seem to exhibit the worst of our qualities, not the best. But God Almighty loves your obedience in Christ as you seek to do all of these things for Him. you love Him. Continue to seek to please your Heavenly Father. The Apostle Paul notes that. He says, fully pleasing to Him, and he bearing fruit in every good work. He encourages us to be people who can present something to God from our Christian faith. It's not only a trusting and a resting in in Christ, but also bearing fruits Of gratitude towards God. Now let us us be clear and not get it twisted. Paul attaches a high value to good works and fruit, not as the root, but as the fruit of his grace. Let us be reformed Christians this evening and rejoice to know that we are not saved by good works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Amen? Amen. What the Apostle Paul is suggesting, nay, he's teaching, excuse me, is that works are a necessary evidence of faith. Done by the power of God, to the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, and for the purposes of God. So Paul prays that the church would rise up from a state of complacency. And that they would be abounding in godliness and abounding in purity. Even in a church that's faltering and struggling doctrinally. They're struggling with their theology. They're struggling in charity. They're struggling in good works. what this teaches us, is that when we see our churches struggling, we are not to be a people who get on Twitter or Facebook and complain about it. We're not to be a people who gossip to one another when our churches struggle. The right response to struggling in the church is to be people of prayer. Too often, the church is shamed, really, by the gossip of her members about the pastor, the elders, or the deacons. Too often, churches are shamed when we quit on the church. We stop trusting in the church. Yet the Apostle Paul says, whom we are to mimic in faith, that Christians are to be people who pray for the church. So when we see doctrinal problems in our church may we be known as a people of prayer when we have disagreements with the leadership may it be done in godliness and purity and may it be done by people who are dependent upon God in prayer so let us take our burdens to the Lord let us us intercede for others knowing that God uses our prayers to produce obedience and faith in the church. The third and finally we see in verse 11 that we are to be a people who pray to endure trials with patience. He says in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It was the Lord Jesus who prayed in Matthew 16. Excuse me, the Lord Jesus who said in Matthew 16 If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We will all have trials. We will all have crosses. And the Apostle Paul prays that as the Colossians face their crosses in life, that they would do so with obedience and patience. If you ask anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time, you will learn that Satan will assail you. That you will endure many trials, but the strength to fight those trials does not come from us. We lack the strength in the flesh. The strength to fight this world needs to come from God Almighty and His, as the Apostle Paul says, God Almighty's glorious might. That's what we need to fight the battle. Brothers and sisters, this evening, a final word of encouragement. Take heart. You are not alone as you carry your crosses. You are not alone as you go through life's trials. The Apostle Paul says that if you pray, God will give you divine strength so that you might have patience and endurance through the trials of life. And it is true We cannot endure the trials of this life alone. Thomas Watson says the most glorious words of the Bible are thy God. If you are not raised on the King James Version, what he's saying is the most glorious words of the Bible are my God. Christian, he is your God. The God of heaven is your God. Who is beckoning you this evening to come into his presence and to bear, and he will bear life's burdens with you. He will give you strength and endurance. And through the means of grace, through that means of prayer, he alone can hold us up in life's darkest moments. So we see that in all cases, Paul is attacking Satan in the Colossian church with prayer. He prays that they would be filled with knowledge, that they wouldn't be assailed by these heresies. Paul says that they might live lives worthy of the Lord, that as Satan that seeks to attack and persecute the church, Paul prays that they would endure. Dear Christian, what is your need in life this day? How is Satan seeking to attack you, to make you complacent? What is the great need of this congregation? Can God not supply all that we need in light of his glorious might? Can he not wake up sleeping congregants and sleeping churches and sleeping denominations? Of course he can. Let us be like Christ. Let us be like the Apostle Paul, who when they see problems in their church, be a people who drop to their knees and to look unto God and to unceasingly, every day, go to Him in prayer. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Thank You for the privilege of prayer. A privilege that we so often do not even realize the greatness of. It is truly a gift that even in this moment we can come to You in this time of prayer through God the Son. And that Lord, You know every need of our church, every need of every individual's life here this evening... And that you have promised to meet every need. You promised to grant every request. Should we bring them to you in prayer. And so God we pray that we would be a people of prayer. We pray for the complacency of our hearts. That Lord you would touch us by the power of your spirit. That we might confess these things. That Lord you might breathe life into us once more. Pray, God, for your congregation here in Caledonia and your churches in the state and around the world. Father, keep us from Satan. Keep us from heresies. Keep us, Lord, steadfast in your truth that we might be a people who might recognize when errors come in. We might stand up against them. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might endure all trials on our knees. We ask this all in Christ's name, who is our Savior. Amen.